The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Today we have a bit of a, a blast from the past, but only for me, chatting with Brian Mazinek, who is currently the Deputy Director Office of Preparedness Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services. You might be asking, why is he chatting with Security Clearance and Security? I actually got to know Brian when he was working on personnel security issues with the GAO. Things come full circle. It is now Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and attacks on critical infrastructure are certainly something that we continue to see more and more. He is in really this unique and very important role with healthcare and public health. And so wanted to have him on the show today to chat a little bit about that and kind of how public health, healthcare, why Cybersecurity Awareness Month is on the radar screen of our public health and healthcare professionals. So thanks so much. Again, Brian, I, I love those Washington, D.C. connections where you meet somebody brilliant and then you get to talk to them about a totally different topic, which shows the scope of and scale of what you're able to, to chat with us about and what your expertise is. So thank you again for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Lindy. I'm really happy to, to reconnect and, and to talk about during the Cybersecurity Awareness Month, some of what we're doing to try to protect the healthcare and public health sector from cyber threats. So thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So just kind of start broad strokes. I have to sometimes take off my, you know, clearance jobs lens of how I feel like we should know that critical infrastructure is under attack. We should have read enough news updates now to kind of know that public health and healthcare professionals need to care about cybersecurity. But I also do have friends who work in the medical profession and sometimes they say things that kind of scare me. So it also, it makes sense that we are, we are chatting about this and kind of having a reminder about this. Why do public health and healthcare professionals, why should they care about cybersecurity? Kind of what is going on? What, how would you say the status of public health and healthcare sector in terms of identifying these threats and being able to address them is? Yeah, great question. So I think, as you mentioned, the healthcare public health sector, it's a critical infrastructure sector. It's a really broad and diverse sector. It has the typical healthcare provider that you think about, outpatient or hospital care, direct patient care, but it also includes laboratories, medical materials, pharmaceutical companies. It's a really broad and diverse sector that touches the everyday lives of, of every American, really. I mean, it's why it's a critical infrastructure sector. It's, it's, it's really critical and important for Americans. And unfortunately, the healthcare sector, for a number of reasons, has been one of the top critical infrastructure sectors subject to cyber attacks, particularly ransomware attacks. So there's a couple of different flavors of cyber attacks that the sector is subject to on a, on a daily basis. We're concerned at the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response within HHS. We're the, the organization within HHS that executes what we call the sector risk management agency responsibility. So we lead and sort of quarterback the department's efforts in this space. And we're particularly concerned about the ransomware attacks. We're definitely data exfiltration is a big concern too, and protecting private health information or PII. However, the ransomware attacks are really concerning because they can pose a direct threat to patient health and safety. If they lock down 
through a ransomware attack, the ability of a hospital or an emergency room, for example, to provide critical life-saving care, you could see real loss of life as a result of a cyber attack. So those are the principal attacks that concern us. And that's why really everyone should be concerned about the cybersecurity of their healthcare provider. Um, we also have seen some, some recent data that shows that it's not just the directly affected hospital or entity in the healthcare sector that's attacked that has those kind of adverse impacts, but there's the, a sort of a blast effect that can be seen in the other nearby hospitals. So there was a, a Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, study recently that looked at stroke care at nearby hospitals. And when there was a significant cyber attack that affected one hospital because of the strain on the nearby hospitals and through diversion and having to absorb those patients, there was actually a measurable effect on patient health and safety at those other institutions. So cyber attacks are really serious. Everyone should be concerned about them for every critical infrastructure sector, but particularly the healthcare public health sector, because it's where there can be potential loss of life in, in some of the acute instances. Okay, well, you got my attention. I'm listening. So talk a little bit about what the federal government is doing, because I think there is some thought there that says, hey, if this is a big issue, hopefully the federal government is taking a look at it. I imagine you have some thoughts around that. Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, we at, at ASPR serve as the sector risk management agency for the healthcare public health sector, but it is very much a team effort across HHS and within the interagency to try to deal with this threat. What we do as the SRMA, we support a sector risk management, we facilitate information sharing, provide best practices. I kind of think of our role as developing and providing resources for the sector, enhancing coordination, and then and this is the area we're really trying to grow in the near term is providing an incident response capability as well. So we've, in terms of planning and developing resources, we've put out things, including the very aptly named resource called the Health Industry Cybersecurity Practices, or the HICCUP, as we refer to it, which is a great resource, has technical volumes associated with it for small, medium, large entities in the sector that has basic information on the top 10 mitigating strategies, the top five threats to be focused on. It's really designed to be a basic tool that anybody can pick up with varying degrees of cyber expertise in a small rural hospital or a large hospital system and know what they need to do immediately to begin to enhance their, their cyber posture. In terms of the enhancing our coordination and managing coordination, we work very closely with CISA, with the FBI, some in the national security community to really respond to the unity of effort across the U.S. government and how we engage in, in providing resources to the sector and also sharing threat information and intelligence. And then in the incident response piece that I mentioned, we work with our partners at FBI and CISA to directly respond to cyber incidents. We're tracking roughly six significant incidents a week in the health care public health sector that we monitor closely. And in some occasions, they ask for help and we come in and provide expertise from the, the medical side in partnership with the criminal investigative work the FBI may do and some of the technical expertise CISA may bring to bear. So that that's kind of what we're doing now to engage and support the sector. And we're in the midst of standing up a dedicated cyber division within our Office of Critical Infrastructure Protection. We'll be hiring some new staff and, and hopefully bringing on some new capabilities to better support the sector in the coming year. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I love when you talk about the interagency effort of it, because I think when you're looking at these big problem sets like ransomware, you know, attacks on critical infrastructure, appreciate you are talking about that you're working with partners on those because a lot of this stuff requires an interagency effort. It's not 
happening in a, in a stovepipe and in a single use case. So I love to see that the government is kind of, you know, joining hands and working together on this stuff. And that kind of ties into the next question was kind of about lessons learned on this. I think when we talk about cyber attacks across the board, it's usually not, you know, if uh, there's going to be <laughs> an attack on your system, but when can you talk to past cyber attacks specific to that HPH sector and how they're playing into the current strategies and policies that the government is undertaking? Absolutely. No, that's a great question, Lindy. I think we definitely need to continue to learn from what we've done in the past and what we're seeing in the sector as we try to better deal with this significant and pervasive threat. And it's not a static threat, too, I should note. So it, it continues to evolve and we need to evolve. Some of the things that we've learned to the coordination piece you just mentioned, I think in the past, we haven't always been as effectively coordinating across the federal government as we could have been. We've had instances where we've not always been as connected to FBI and CISA as we are today. And I think that's led to some confusion and maybe we haven't provided the best support to the sector in responding to incidents in particular. That's something we're absolutely addressing and, and, and are improving on. Some of what we've also seen, and I should note, we did not too long ago a detailed landscape analysis where we collected some data and conducted essentially a study to look at the sector and what practices were implemented, basic cybersecurity practices aligned to the NIST cybersecurity framework. We looked at what kind of challenges they were facing, how we could better support the healthcare public health sector. And it was just like in many other areas, it was not, I guess, shouldn't it, it validated some things that were not particularly surprising, but important to know that they, that was sort of the, the case in that basic cyber hygiene is still really important. There were some basic mitigating steps that were not always taken that could really significantly enhance the the posture of, of entities in the sector. Yeah, I love that you brought up basic cyber hygiene, because I feel like when you kind of dig in and analyze a lot of these incidents and issues that happen, it does come down to basic best practices and things. And I do feel like that's kind of why an across the board effort, I know CISA's kind of worked really hard to promote and promote this across both the government agency side and private entities to say, hey, taking some proactive steps could be a big help. So I kind of want to stay on that proactivity piece of it. What are some of maybe the research and development efforts or things that you're doing to get ahead of the next cyber threat so that we're not, sometimes it can feel like we're in a constant reactive posture, right? Just because the threats are so pervasive, they're so constant. It seems like our adversaries have unlimited time to attack us and we have a cyber skills gap that we keep talking about. I know that that might always be the case to some extent. There is some reactivity here, but I know there's also a lot of proactive pieces of it, there are some R&D efforts in this space. Can you speak to that some? And again, it depends on how you define research and development, but from the more literal use of that term, we have some exciting activity within HHS with the recent establishment of the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, ARPA-H. They've launched what they call a DigiHeals initiative, which is intended to develop new technologies and technical solutions to help the healthcare sector in particular. And I consider this, this research as well, but the landscape analysis that we've done that's given us some key insights on the basic practices to focus on and what we can do to better support the sector. I think that kind of research is helpful. I would also note and a really exciting initiative that we'll be launching soon is the RISC tool. And that's an acronym, of course, being a government agency for the, the Risk Identification and Site Criticality tool. This is something that ASPR has developed. There's already version 1.0 has been out there for a while, but we're going to be launching version 2.0 in the next month or two. And this is going to be a, a very user-friendly dynamic tool that's free for entities in the sector, for hospitals, 
hospitals and other entities to use, which will allow them to assess their risk against, it's not just cyber, it's uh, 67 different hazards, but it'll allow them to evaluate their risk and what it's going to also do if they elect to, to enable this feature, it's purely voluntary, that will feed some data back to us as to what their risk posture is, which will inform in the aggregate some of our efforts to better support the sector as well. So it'll have a give us a feedback loop and that will help guide our efforts going forward. That's amazing. I think it's always great when you can get these big groups together because I do think it takes kind of some of that movement around some of these things to say there's a lot of good ideas out there sometimes, but if you don't get enough momentum to really implement them across the board, it can, you know, you're just not as accomplishing as much as you can be. It does seem like, especially for arenas where cybersecurity maybe was not a part of the genesis story, right? We don't traditionally go to the doctor thinking about our cybersecurity health or cyber hygiene. And in a lot of those industries, it can feel like the cyber piece is an add-on or kind of an additional thing that's being done. And it's not necessarily in the ground floor of when they're launching a new system or building a new facility or thinking about something. So as a limited resource in that environment, kind of what maybe is your organization doing or broadly what just could be done or what would you recommend to those healthcare or public health professionals to kind of think more about cyber hygiene and cybersecurity from the ground floor? Yeah. And this, I mean, I know everyone struggles with resources and, and that this is not a unique challenge to the healthcare and public health sector. I think cybersecurity is often secondary to, to other factors in the critical infrastructure sectors, but it shouldn't be, of course, but in the healthcare and public health sector in particular, too, we, we recognize that the sector is emerging from three kind of grueling years of a global pandemic. There's a lot of burnout, a lot of other factors that make appropriate resourcing and focus on, on cybersecurity difficult for them to, to deal with. So I think what we try to do to help them and I mentioned this a little bit already, is we put out resources like the Hiccup, the Health Industry Cybersecurity Practices, which are tailored to be very easy to use, kind of meets you where you're at and helps guide you through some basic cyber hygiene practices and steps you can take to better improve your posture. And they scale up from there. I mean, you can choose to invest as much as you'd like, of course. We also, I think from the federal perspective too, I mean, resources are very much constrained. We're under a continuing resolution right now, of course. But as I mentioned, this is a priority for us. It's a priority in the national cyber strategy that came out not too long ago, the critical infrastructure sector and, and the what we do for the healthcare sector and for all the sectors is a key pillar in that strategy. So kind of reflecting that direction from the administration, this is definitely, despite general budgetary constraints that exist in the in the federal government, we are, are growing our team. As I mentioned, we're building out a cyber division and trying to offer more resources to the sector, knowing their own resource challenges. So a lot of ways to improve your cyber posture if, if you're an entity in the sector, and we'll meet you where you're at, knowing you, you may not be able to throw everything at this problem right away. But, but you know, taking some basic initial steps now can, can go a long way to protecting patient health and safety from cyber threats. Yeah, and I'm hearing career opportunities, too, I think, for folks that have some interest or even a background in public health and then being able to apply that to cyber. I think we're seeing more and more where you can kind of meld expertise together. There's huge advantages to that. And it sounds like there's going to be some opportunities within your agency, but also probably across the private sector as well to kind of take on some different roles and focusing on cyber from a public health arena 
And like you said, I mean, you mentioned COVID-19. I didn't even think about that. I don't think I had ever had a single telehealth appointment until then. And now I think about the amount of medical and, you know, PII that I'm sharing online and virtually through those and how that does create just a lot of, of risk factors. So yeah, you made some some great points there. Talk about some, you know, additional resources, resources that are currently available. You've mentioned you're talking my love language here as a former army person with all these acronyms. So I know we got risk, we have hiccup. Maybe what are some of those things that you can offer to healthcare professionals, public health professionals right now, as far as best practices for thinking about cybersecurity in their daily operations? Question. I'll, I'll just flag a couple here and, and, and looking forward to, you know, more coming out soon, as I mentioned, with the new risk tool. But within ASPR, we have something called TRACY, which again, great, another acronym for you, but it's the Technical Resources Assistance Center and Information Exchange. And it has a whole cybersecurity collection. So if you go to the ASPR website, if you just Google ASPR, you'll, you'll find it. There's some great resources there for folks in terms of how to prepare for cyber incident response in the healthcare sector, other things like that. And then finally, and I probably didn't mention this enough, but we coordinate a ton with the sector itself. There's a very active group uh, within the sector coordinating council focused on cybersecurity issues. Um, that's the healthcare and public health sector. And they have a bunch of resources as well as videos for clinicians. Their website is also really easy to remember. It's just healthsectorcouncil.org. So I'd encourage folks to go there. We are happy to partner with them in developing and, and, and pushing resources and best practices. Awesome. Thank you so much. I feel like there's, I, I've learned a lot. Again, I just think when I think cyber, I tend to focus on the DIB, the Defense Industrial Base or the IC. I know NSA has their Cyber Collaboration Center. So I love hearing about this program and all of your efforts because it sounds like you're applying a lot of the resourcing, the insights, the tools that we're seeing across other sectors specific to public health and to the healthcare sector, which um, as you've said, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's probably one of the, the more compromised and, um, you know, from ransomware anywhere, I do feel like I, I hear a lot about the healthcare sector being hit with that. So appreciate that there are government resources out there. The government is here to help and there are things going on. And so you're, you're doing some great work. So again, thank you, Brian Mazinek, who is the Deputy Director, Office of Preparedness Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response with the Department of Health and Human Services here for Cybersecurity Awareness Month, sharing some great insights, tips, and even websites to check out to help improve your cyber hygiene across the healthcare industry. Thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Wendy. Appreciate your time. This is Sean Bigley and Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about the adjudicative guidelines. And, you know, Lindy, for most of our listeners, their job depends on them. But I'm often astounded at how few people have ever taken the time to read them. I know for me, prior to becoming an attorney and practicing in this space, I was a background investigator for the government. And I am sort of embarrassed to say that even I hadn't read them until I became an attorney. I didn't know what they were because as a background investigator, it's really not something you deal with. What's your sense? Do you, do you feel like there's kind of a lack of, of literacy on this issue? Or do you feel like since this is something we are talking about a lot at clearance jobs and other places that people are kind of starting to get a little bit more clued in. Hey, hey, that was a nice segue, Sean. I, I'll, I'll receive that. Yes. I mean, I do think clearance jobs has been a big, big push around this issue of saying like, hey, it's important to understand the security clearance process. I love the government. I love you, government. I love you, DCSA. 
The government has traditionally done a terrible job at advising applicants about this process and leaving them very uninformed when they apply. Um, many security officers, I, I love you as well, but a lot of them have a sink or swim mentality. They're just sending these forms and saying, good luck. Some of the big companies have their own kind of guides to, you know, to filling out the SF-86. Some of the agencies do. State Department, for instance, is kind of well known for kind of actually publishing information about this process. But it is very disparate across the community. And there has traditionally not been a clear process for providing applicants information about what it actually is they are filling out. And I think that's why sometimes we have these kind of crazy cases around the security clearance process where people applied and have done, you know, different things like, why did this person even apply for security clearance? Well, it's because they never have read the adjudicated guidelines. So I think that there is this disconnect. I'm biased here, but I think if you are applying for a security clearance or working in the national security community, it is to your advantage to have read up on the process a little bit, even just a brief summary. And then just knowing, hey, oh, I do have like, what is what is misuse of IT systems per se? Like, and then reading about it and then knowing if it's actually an issue or it's not. When the reality is once they read the adjudicated guidelines, it's actually not an issue. Yeah, I agree. I mean, some of the more entertaining calls that I used to get in law practice, I use the term entertaining loosely. I mean, I felt bad for some of these people because they were clearly really, really stressed about something that they didn't need to be stressed about. Some of these calls, you know, that I would get would be, you know, oh my gosh, I'm going through the clearance process for the first time. I feel like the government's bugging my phone. I, are my keystrokes going to be logged? Is my inner, you know, email going to be read? Are they going to look in my bank account? You know, all these questions about these like really crazy invasive practices that just don't take place as a normal part of the security clearance background investigation process. Granted, you know, if you're like somebody who has mega, mega stuff to hide and the government finds out about it, then it could spiral into more of a criminal investigation, counterintelligence investigation, and those sorts of things could start happening. But for the average ordinary applicant, no, the government's not, you know, peering in your email account or your bank account or listening in on your phone calls or following you as you go about your day-to-day, you know, duties as part of the background investigation. What I found is that many applicants wrongly fixated on the investigation process when they actually should have been fixating on the back end. Like, I know I have this issue. We know it's going to come up because it's on my criminal record, or I was fired from a job two years ago, or like basic things that are on the SF-86 and and are going to come up during the background investigation. So let's not worry so much about the investigative process. Let's take a look at the adjudicative guidelines and the standards that you're actually being held to. And so I always told people like, your job is dependent on these things. You should probably read them. And it's one of those things where I think, you know, in particular, some of the outlier adjudicative guidelines, the the misuse of IT system, the sexual behavior, the psychological condition, some of those things are the ones that people actually need to be focusing on. I'm curious, Lindy, you know, obviously we get a lot of user questions, comments, things like that on clearance jobs and clearance jobs blog. Is there one particular adjudicative guideline that seems to be kind of the, the one that causes people more problems or stress than others? Well, I mean, everybody asks about the drug use one, right? Drug involvement. And that's because we've spoken about frequently on this show, the evolving policy, the trends around drug use mean that just hits a lot more folks. And that we always emphasize with the adjudicative guidelines, this is why reading them is important because it is not just drug use, it is drug involvement. 
And so that's why it, it hits a lot more applicants. We get the whole, hey, my girlfriend is, you know, does drugs or, you know, I have a cohabitant or my roommate or just a lot more issues around that. And that's just one of the frequent ones. I'm always surprised financial issues hit a lot of applicants. We don't get as many questions about that as we do the spicy security clearance questions. And I think that's because, as you know, as you talk about here, people have not read the adjudicative guidelines maybe have not gotten a copy of their credit score recently and are kind of blindsided by a lot of things that come up. And that's why I think reading the adjudicative guidelines ahead of time is helpful doing some basic personal uh, organization triage around like knowing what your credit score is or if something's going to get flagged is super helpful because the government tells you how to mitigate this stuff. I mean, sometimes people act like shocked of like, how can I do it? The adjudicative guidelines Spell out, if you have X issue, Y is how to mitigate it. And you can use the additional comment section of your SF-86 not to overshare information, but only as as directed to, to specifically address issues that are mitigating factors in the adjudicative guidelines. I mean, and that is what is painful about the process because I see people use things like the additional questions poorly. And that is directly because they have not read what is actually mitigating. And then they end up including more information that makes them look bad rather than what makes them look good because we don't know how to defend ourselves properly. And this is why we need attorneys. But do you have, can you have like maybe even examples of that, of how like a misapplication of the adjudicative guidelines where somebody actually made them made their problem worse? Yeah, I'll give you a great one. And this was really common that I used to see all the time where people would try to excuse their drug use by the fact that they were intoxicated. And they would say, you know, I only snorted Coke because I was super, super drunk. <laughs> and, and you would have to kind of look at them and say, like, that's your excuse. That's your answer. And, and there, to be fair, there are outlier times when that works. Like, for example, you get slipped something in a drink and you didn't realize it. And, you know, or, or you know, you are not somebody who's normally a heavy drinker, but there was a one off occasion where maybe you had a few too many. And that was when you like those scenarios with the help of an experienced attorney can potentially work in your favor. But for the vast majority of cases, not so much, because if somebody is regularly using drugs and they're regularly getting drunk on top of it, then you now have two issues instead of one. To your other point, in terms of, you know, kind of some of these issues that are really clearly spelled out in the adjudicative guidelines, what the mitigating factors are, the best one there would be the financial conditions guideline, because taking a financial education class, having a budget are key mitigating factors. And yet I would get clients all the time in my law practice who had no idea that that would help them. And so I would have to sort of gently guide them that direction and say, go you know, to your local community college, find a, you know, financial education class, go take it and then get me something showing that you took it. And that's going to help you. And, and people just didn't realize. So I think the best sort of public service announcement maybe we can give to listeners is, you know, beyond go read these things where they actually are. And they're found at uh, what's called CAD for Security Executive Agent Directive 4, which I know is a mouthful, but if you just Google S-E-A-D 4, they will come up. You can read through them all there. It's not uh, not reading that's going to keep you awake for very long, but it's it's helpful to at least have that knowledge. For sure. I mean, it's news you can use if you're applying for a security clearance. It is worth knowing what the adjudicative guidelines are. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. 
Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.